Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast where your hosts go merrily deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the naughty or nice list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Merry Provocateur, bringing the competence. Someone had to. Mm, that's right, mm. that's right. Uh, and speaking of competence, um, and, and, and also talking about like, debts paid, I think, as well. It, it, it's, uh, and, and presence in the spirit of giving in this time of year. Um, we're bringing back two gents this week who we, we, we gave a really short hand last time. They joined us for uh, Men in Black International, of all films, uh, unfortunately. A real coal in the stocking, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, I think without further ado, our guests this week, Mr. Liam Dempsey and Mr. Matt Brothers. Gents, how are you both doing? Yes, well, ho, 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 Merry Spimus from all of us here at Spocklight. <laughs> doing very well, guys, doing very well. Um, well, I mean, in terms of your podcasts, I was going to introduce them. I mean, there's a few. You've got a fleet of them. Mass. Um, between mm-hmm. the two of you. Yeah, just a... Well, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah that's true. I mean, Spotlight is the, the podcast that connects the two of you, which we've been on a couple of times ourselves talking about Star Trek and our mutual love of Star Trek. Yeah, you've both been on. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, uh, Matt, we've been on... Um, it's uh, is Paul Dano okay? You have uh, to talk about Night and Daddy, uh, our only ever Tom Cruise film. We've still never spoken about him on the show. I still can't believe I beat you guys to it in getting to some Cruise spy action, and uh, it's wonderful to be able to link up you guys with a with a thematic film such as that on on that run of uh, of Dano filmography rundowns. I'm incredibly confused. You've not done any of the Mission Impossible's yet. No, because the whole thing was. We knew that there's only so many lightning rod franchises that people are going to tune in for, right? right? So you, we have the James Bond stuff that's ongoing, and we couldn't burn through both like at the same time, right? We need years built onto this podcast. Right. So the Johnny Englishes aren't going to sustain <laughs> listeners the way that, say, <laughs> the Mission Impossibles will. Um or Duncan Jacks or something like that. So <laughs> <laughs> we need those Mission Impossibles. But we realized, I think it was maybe after doing the Paul Dano show and talking about yeah. Night and Day, that like that is a real gap in what we've covered, which is Tom Cruise. Like We've done War of the Worlds on the Patreon, but we have scheduled early in the new year that finally Tom Cruise will make an appearance on Spy Hards. Well, that's it. You can slowly start to ease into him through stuff like Night and Day before even getting to the big MI franchise. Exactly, yeah. Absolutely. Spice him out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got, we've got time. There's lots of spy films to talk about. And we, mm-hmm. we've got a very special one this week. But, gents, just in the meantime, what's been going on with both of you since you were last on the show? I mean, uh, we'll start with you, Matt. What's been happening? Uh, yeah, it's been crazy. So we've, me and Liam and, and Paul as well have been doing lots of spotlighting as we go. We're, we're prepping our own Christmas episode to come, which is always a tricky endeavor with Spotlight as there's never really any direct Christmas related Star Trek thing. So finding, finding something to tie in every, every year is always a fun task. And we got something very fun this time around, which we'll be doing very soon. Uh, and over on Is Paul Dana Okay, we've just finished um, our first other actor miniseries. We did a, a short run of episodes looking at Judy Greer, who kind of also fills into that, falls into that space of uh, 
well known by face, not always by name, uh, by her work and everything, uh, character actor. So we've just finished eight, a little run of eight episodes and a bonus uh, on Judy Greer before we head back to the last drips of the well of, of Paul Dano's filmography, um, which will be capped off with a few remaining things we have and his new film with uh, Steven Spielberg, The Fablemans, for early next year, um, before we go back into hiding, before coming back with another different character actor for another different mini-season. And, and what about you, Liam? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, just to follow up on Spotlight, Matt is completely correct that we have a very special Christmas special uh, coming this year, uh, actually suggested by a listener. Uh, someone emailed us in to the Spotlight uh, email. Um, literally just, yeah, so a random uh, listener who suggested a, a particular film that would be good for a Christmas special. So, you know, we... we we give the listeners what they want and we are <laughs> going to do uh, that film on the Christmas special this year. I won't reveal what the film is, uh, but I will reveal it's actually a TV movie and it stars Sir Patrick Stewart. So we we shall see. And it isn't his version of The Christmas Carol because we've already done okay. that for our first ever Christmas special. <laughs> for our so, yeah, <laughs> yeah. For our punishment. I mean, well, fucking hell, it was better than Christmas Eve with Patrick Stewart, which we did for our second <laughs> oh, Christmas God, special. Oh, God, was that as well? Christ. That's almighty. what I'm thinking of. Yeah, no, no. We did... <laughs> his Christmas Carol was his Shakespeare in comparison to Christmas Eve. Fuck me. <laughs> there's only one, like, one Star Trek movie, I think, that ties in, which is Generations, but I, I don't even think there's an episode that ties into Christmas, is there? There's no Christmas special of Star Trek, which is absolutely outrageous. On our first Christmas special uh, for Spotlight, we actually ran through all the um, Christmas references in Star Trek. There are quite a few, like, over the years. Um, there is, like you say, Generations. There's the kind of dream sequence in, like, the Nexus in that. There's a scene in an original series episode where there's a flashback with Kirk about to go to a Christmas party. Um, There's a scene in Voyager where there's a Christmas tree with a Voyager Christmas toy in in the Christmas tree. And there's a few other bits and pieces, but it is few and far between. And there's never been a proper Christmas special of Star Trek. So we have to find other avenues. So we did the Patrick Stewart Christmas Carol TV movie for our first one. We did Christmas Eve, um, which is the Patrick Stewart starring uh, kind of Christmas film, which is kind of like faith-based Christmas film um, with, uh, it's kind of like Valentine's Day and New Year's Eve, those kind of films, but a really, really cheapo faith-based version. Uh, And we also did Batman and Robin, uh one year as well <laughs> which was great stuff which of course written by akiva goldsman who's one of the main architects behind kind of new track uh on mm-hmm. tv at the moment uh which was great fun we didn't get to do one last year but we are back this year with a new christmas special which i'm very excited about has it been two years since batman and robin yeah that was 2020 My God. Was, yeah, yeah yeah first first year in in lockdown baby and uh yeah I, i'm really really excited about doing another Christmas special. We're going to be doing that one in person as well because we couldn't do Batman and Robin in person because it was all lockdown time uh, then. Um, because I, I love Christmas, guys. I was I was honoured to be invited onto your Christmas special. Um, but since we last came on to Men in Black International, <laughs> I suppose the big happening in all our lives in terms of 
the world of spies, which you explore on this podcast, given that our episode, Men in Black International, went out in March last year, is, of course, No Time to Die. Yeah. Uh, with spoilers, this is a spoiler alert, so you've got no excuse to kind of shout your mouth off after I've said this, where James Bond dies. Like, I mean, that is a pretty, that's a pretty big event in the spy world. Probably the, the biggest event there could be in the spy world, surely. It, it certainly was something. I think the, uh, the Bond fandom is still in the wake of that event. And, and there's often spats online about whether it was a good idea or not. I mean, I've, I've already put my two cents into it. I couldn't care. Uh, kill him. Because he'll just come back anyway. Yeah. Yeah, like that was where I sat as well. It's like it was a pretty closed arc on the entire Bond era for that Craig had there. So like I, I don't have a particular issue with it. I think my main concern is like, let's just not repeat it again. Mm. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Don't do another trilogy with a new actor and then kill him again at the at the end and that become the thing. Like, like you say, it's yeah. that thing of like, well, basically... Bond's already dead before this because this kind of uh, Casino Royale started a whole new timeline. Like, you know, that wasn't a prequel, as we now know. It literally started like a whole new thing, basically. So, you know, the Bond that we've been following before in 20 films, you're kind of like, well, he's basically dead. So, literally, who cares? Doesn't matter. Like, uh, unless you go, unless we get into the whole... Did all the other Bond films happen between Quantum and Skyfall? Like, uh, no, no, please, <laughs> God, no. Listen, God, no. How, how much Christmas cheer do you have in you right now? Because it sounds like you've got quite a lot. Um, and I will say, you know, in speaking of Christmas, to some people, the fact that Daniel Craig's James Bond is dead is the best Christmas present they could have ever received. Fucking because, hell. uh, he w- not to me. I really love the guy, but there's a lot of people that really wish it, he was never James Bond. So uh, Merry Christmas to you folks. I don't <laughs> think you're listening, but hey ho. Um, and yeah, we speak about Men in Black International, and and hopefully, hopefully we've got something better for you this time. And Cam, I think you have something wrapped. It looks quite big on your lap for these guys. What is it? Yes, we are tackling 1989's The Package, starring Gene <laughs> Hackman and Tommy Lee Jones, directed by Andrew Davis. Look at the size of it. That's a massive package. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, yeah, so uh, we compiled a list a while ago of all of the Christmas spy movies. Um, uh, and We've done a couple ourselves so far. We did The Long Kiss Goodnight, our first Christmas, and then we did On Her Majesty's Secret Service last year and we thought how do we top on her majesty's secret service yeah gene hackman done it's what you do (laughs) (laughs) all time high all time Mm -hmm. high um well the usual question i ask at this point is what's everyone's previous experience with this film i think i could guess everyone's but uh i've never heard of it until i i reviewed this film anyone else had ever heard of it no, no never, n- literally never heard of it. We, we, it was one of those ones you mentioned it. I had to look it up. Uh, me, it was like, oh, Gene Hackman, Tony Lee Jones, Andrew Davis. Okay, like you know, but I, yes, I knew the people involved once I looked it up. But yeah, and no, I'd never heard of this film. I think it's one of those ones that falls into that late eighties, early nineties period where there's a lot of these kind of 
post Cold War spy thrillery espionage action stuff of this of this ilk. Uh, and Gene Hackman as well. He was having a great run of things around this time as well. Um, but somehow I'd never come across this on my radar either. This this is it, and it's great to see that you know Andrew Davis went on immediately doing Under Siege and then The Fugitive. Like that's a pretty great run for uh, early nineties sort of real adult action director. You know. Yeah, I mean, I was not familiar with this movie at all. I remember when I stumbled across it. I can't remember. I think, Scott, you messaged it to me and were like, oh, add this to the list. And I was like, what the heck is this? <laughs> like, why have I not heard of it? Because I know, even if I haven't seen them, I know the Gene Hackman movies of this era. Stuff like, cl you know, Class Action or Narrow Margin. I haven't seen these movies, but I'm aware of them. And I probably will watch them at some point in the future. Um, so, like, this one was a real, like, huh? And then Andrew Davis, I was very familiar with because of, yeah, The Fugitive and Under Siege and even Above the Law. So it was a real like head scratcher as to why I hadn't heard of this movie. And actually last night I was up visiting my parents who would have been in their, you know, like late mid 30s sort of thing when this movie came out. And I asked them, I would be quite young, but I asked them like, at the time, did you see this movie, you know, on home video or on TV? And neither one of them had ever heard of it. Some films are really those ones that's like, does this exist? Have we all just collectively imagined this? Because you tell people, you're like, it sounds like one we should know about. <laughs> yeah. The package was empty. There was nothing inside. <laughs> it doesn't look like it was a box office success from looking at it. So no, yeah. um, that would explain. We'll dig into that in a second. I think uh, what I'll do, because I imagine a lot of the listeners when they saw this as their Christmas film were like, huh as well <laughs> but i will say i posted about this on twitter the other day that we were covering this film and i got a lot of responses of people saying it's uh, like a hidden gem of andrew davis's work and really praising gene hackman uh, you know mm. uh, liam i think you actually like jumped in on the tweet as well and saw some of the replies there was people that had seen this film so there were, i think the spy fans of the world do kind of look to this film as a, as a good christmas example so i'm glad we're talking about it it feels like a movie that if I had seen it on TV, would have had a bit of an impact back in the day. But it just didn't seem to show on a channel that I was frequenting. But I can completely understand it, that there's people out there who would have stumbled across it in that way and probably seen it a few times on TV. I mean, Cam, you're just usually on the Playboy channel free hour most of the time. and then <laughs> The scrambled version. <laughs> yeah, yeah as well will ever find you on TV. It's, it's one of those films that feels like a real paradox where it, you're right, it feels like a very TV movie in the sense of it's one you would have seen late night on TV at some point, but it still feels very much like a film. Like the copy I rented off of iTunes was like a scan of an old 35mm print. It must have been because there was film grain, there was flicker. It was great. It was like having my own little private screening. And, and, you know, films of this era just look great. They look better than stuff today. So it's one that feels and looks like a, like a proper film, but that I would just imagine would be forever repeated on TV, but not when I was watching. <laughs> yeah, I should say yeah. that I uh, rented the 88 films Blu-ray uh, for this. 88 films, obviously, they're one of the uh, really nice boutique Blu-ray companies that are about now. Um, and yeah, they released this on, on Blu-ray. and I, I get the feeling it might have perhaps been in their earlier days of kind of releasing Blu-rays maybe, and maybe it's just kind of license they could pick up. But, you know, they do put it out. And it was a reasonably vanilla disc, but it was a nice kind of Blu-ray transfer of it. 
And usually, like, they're all those boutique Blu-ray companies tend to pick out films that they kind of, you know, want to release, uh, that they feel like, kind of, yeah, like you say, hidden, slightly hidden gem kind of films. And, uh, yeah, so obviously I think there are people out there uh, who really rate this picture. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, well, firstly, the first thing to announce in terms of more Christmas presents, uh, along with this conversation, is later this week, on the Thursday, not the Friday, we're going to give it a little bit of time because Christmas Day is quite shortly afterwards. We're actually speaking to Mr. Andrew Davis himself. Whoa. I mean, that is amazing. Like, you know. That is um, a present. That's the real package. Yeah. That is the yeah. It's a, it's a big the real one. package. Is the friendships we made along the way, Andrew Davis. I'm sure Davis's package is massive. Oh, yeah. You just gotta unwrap it. I, I I have no doubt about it. But yeah, check that out on Thursday. I mean, uh, this film as well. We'll get into, but you know, he's done some of the best movies of the '90s and early uh, late '80s. So it's going to be a fantastic conversation. So tune in for that. But if you have never heard of the package. Here is your letterbox.com synopsis. The Package. He's one man racing against time to stop the most explosive conspiracy in history. Experienced Green Beret Sergeant Johnny Gallagher is escorting a prisoner, airborne ranger Thomas Boyer, back to the US. But Boyer escapes and Gallagher must risk life and limb to catch him. Perfect. It, it sort of is, but it's also like that's the very clear reading as to what happens. But the movie is uh, far more murky in its storytelling intentionally than what mm. that synopsis would communicate. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Um, well, Cam, it's about time we got a haircut, we shaped up, and we be the best that we could be. Let's talk about the behind the scenes of the package. How did it get so big? <laughs> so yeah, there's going to be a lot of those puns. I feel like throughout this episode, but I'm um. For it. <laughs> It's funny, we talk about how none of us had really heard of this movie, and it seems like, you know, when you start to dive into the making of this movie, like, in terms of what's out there for resources, very thin. This is not one where there's, like, a well-chronicled behind-the-scene account um, on what was going on with the package. Nobody wants a thin package. Thank you, Scott. Moving <laughs> on. <laughs> So the writer of this movie was John Bishop. He was born in 1929, and he was a playwright who uh, had scored a couple successes on Broadway, starting with 1977's The Trip Back Down. He did not start working into film until well into his life. Like, it wasn't until 1984 where he had two, a credit on two episodes of Comedy Zone, a TV show I'm not particularly familiar with. And then he only had two films. He did The Package, following up those two TV episodes, and then closed out his film writing career with 1994's Drop Zone with Wesley Snipes, a movie I have seen. Um, it was a pretty fun movie. He was more known in that era for being sort of a punch-up writer and doing rewrite work on movies such as Clear and Present Danger or Beverly Hills Cop 3. Clearly, you know, someone you could bring in on these sort of action-oriented films, but not someone with a huge filmography, which I thought was quite interesting. It's always interesting to hear about those writers that have these really short filmographies, but you just sort of find their fingerprints in all these sorts of films. Don McPherson is another one that we've spoken to in the past that like had a very long career, but if you look on his filmography, it's like 10 entries. We've also um, come across a few playwrights who like had very short filmographies, but were like very well-established, you know, Broadway or theater people. 
Yeah, definitely from what I could see, he was mostly a playwright um, and, you know, a kind of slight script doctor for a short time. Also, sorry, did some rewrites on Primal Fear as well, which is another kind of big movie. Um, but yeah, it does feel like he was a playwright primarily. I, I think that kind of does sort of lean into the package. It's, it's quite a dialogue heavy film at the end of the day um you know a lot of uh, although there is action in the film there is a lot of kind of dialogue um in the movie so definitely you can kind of tell he comes from a playwright background maybe yeah for sure and i mean this movie was fast-tracked really quick apparently like it was one year between receiving the script that they went into principal photography so we talk about some movies where like the script is going through various you know, evolutions over a like consistently uh, large number of years, but this was not the case with this movie. And Andrew Davis, we mentioned him earlier. So um, I think everyone knows him for The Fugitive, which was like his big smash hit in 1993. But he got his start um, in 1969 as a assistant camera operator on the Robert Forster film Medium Cool. And then he just went on to do a bunch of different jobs. He was a writer, cinematographer. And he became a director in 1978 with the movie Stony Island, which I had never seen. It's about two jazz musicians on the road. And then he kind of dabbled. He did a horror movie called The Final Terror and then really kind of made his name doing the um, um, Chuck Norris movie Code of Silence. And then he rolled that into the Seagal movie Above the Law. And then it was like this streak of like hit movies like Under Siege, the you know, The Fugitive. He did a perfect murder later in his career. And Disney's Holes was a reasonably sized hit as well. A reasonably sized hole, I guess. Um, <laughs> holes and packages, people. Holes and packages. That was Cam. That wasn't me, I'll add everyone. That's true. Cam, I've got to say, you've you've skipped chain reaction. Yeah. There. Now that well, was a big one. I saw Chain Reaction at the cinema, uh, which is Keanu Reeves and Morgan Freeman. Um, like, you know, where Keanu's at his kind of like biggest kind of like here. And I said, coming off speed like a year later. Like, yeah, I remember seeing He's this coming movie. off speed. Was he all right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember seeing this flick in the cinema and it is. Uh, Please tell me you reviewed it for your newspaper at the time. I didn't. I, did. I wish I Damn. had because then there'd be an existing uh, review of me giving it nine <laughs> out of ten at the time can you do a letterbox list of every film in the mid 90s you did a newspaper review for as a kid oh i should do i should do yeah this is for obviously people who don't know i've mentioned this on our podcast before in the mid 90s i was a junior film critic for my local paper like so literally (laughs) this is when i'm like uh 11 12 um girls 13 i've been for about two years uh i got sent to see like press screenings as like a junior like film critic for all these like movies and so somewhere (laughs) There is like insane. Obviously, I'm like 11, 12 at the time, so I'm giving like insane ratings to some films. So there's a 10 out of 10 Batman and Robin review. <laughs> yes, like yes. Uh, and yeah, I, I proved mean, so, you correct on that one. Uh, funny enough, one of the films I saw was a uh, press screen was Star Trek: First Contact. Oh, okay. Uh, which and with that, I gave nine out of ten, and I'd still give it a nine out of ten today. Still fucking amazing. So there you go. I, My favorite. TNG film. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I hold hold with that one. But um, yeah, Chain Reaction, I saw around that time. I did not review it, but I do remember thinking it was fucking amazing. 
Um, but now I can see it, it's got 18% of Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, my, my memory <laughs> may be failing me on chain reaction. Like, who's right, who's wrong? You, ch- childlike you or the rest of the internet and critics? <laughs> yeah, hey, hey, films, get on the Blu-ray for chain reaction. <laughs> like, you've got to get reevaluated. Yeah, I remember when that one came out because it actually had a lot of press around it because it was like following up The Fugitive. And uh, I recall people weren't the kindest to it at the time. I did see it on video, but it's been so long. I really don't remember much at all. But uh, yeah, I do remember Chain Reaction definitely had... People were aware of that movie. Like, it was marketed pretty heavily at the time. But uh, in terms of the actual production, it was really tough to find stuff. I actually managed to strike gold um, using the Amazon previews for a book written about Gene Hackman where there was only a few pages available to preview, but one of those pages was the package. (laughs) No one's going to be interested in this. Put this page out for free. That's fine. Just a chapter in his memoir. Like, this will cover it. (laughs) A paragraph. (laughs) And so they talked about how uh, Gene Hackman was... He sort of acknowledged he was a pain on this set. Uh, He had reached a point in his career where he found it very tough to be directed and really had just no patience for uh no one directs hackman (laughs) (laughs) really yes and i had stumbled across earlier in my research a 1989 interview with hackman do on the press tour for this movie and i was like oh my god this is gonna be gold so i read the interview and it's basically a full page of hackman um apologizing to the uh reporter for being tired and miserable (laughs) i was like oh it gave me nothing. There was absolutely no content about the movie whatsoever. It was just Gene Hackman, who at the time of the press tour was also shooting uh, Narrow Margin in Vancouver, my hometown here, and uh, was basically like, I'm really tired from doing night shoots. I'm just really tired. You, uh, you could say that Gene Hackman was not having the most wonderful time of the year. He was not. No, no. And I've heard stories of Hackman around this era. I remember Sam Raimi had a fun anecdote that Bruce Campbell uh, recited in his first book about Quick and the Dead, where basically you had to really try to talk Gene Hackman into following any direction whatsoever. Um, he was like gifted actor and obviously had amazing instincts because those performances come across on screen, but I don't think it was the easiest to actually, you know, get through a scene. Um, and apparently him and Tommy Lee Jones respected each other, but did not get along. Um, both of them are known to be a little prickly, I think, uh, generally. Did he and, not um, sanction that man's buffoonery? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And apparently, uh, Tommy Lee Jones got angry when Hackman wanted to start cutting Boyette's lines. And, uh, you know, if you're an actor, that's not generally something that endears you to another actor is when they're saying, can you get rid of that guy's lines? <laughs> and so um, apparently they did not acknowledge each other when filming wrapped. They just walked away in separate directions and that marked the end of the shooting of the package. <laughs> but that's the thing in it. At this time, Hackman is is a bona fide like star and like seasoned kind of like yeah. veteran star as well, who's got like, you know, real kind of respectable career, massive moves behind like the French connection, uh and so mm-hmm. many, many others. Oscar. Yeah, exactly. And Tommy Lee Jones at this point, nineteen eighty nine, he's nothing. Like going like you know, is he, he's really his career took so long to kick off. The fugitive essentially makes him 
when he kind of is in that. And he's in loads of films before then. He, he's in Rolling Thunder in the 70s, which I, is a real kind of favourite of mine. I really love that movie, and he's great in it. But really, his roles are reasonably kind of small, jobbing actor until he gets the fugitive, and that's what makes him a superstar. So at this point in his career, like Hatman would have held all of the power while on that set, 100%. Yeah, you know, Tommy Lee Jones pops up in Coal Miner's Daughter as like the co-lead of that movie opposite Sissy Spacek. And he's like fantastic. But it doesn't seem like there was a lot of momentum, like getting him those leading parts after that movie. Because, yeah, you're right. There's a lot of like crazy Tommy Lee Jones villains for like the next handful of years before, yeah, The Fugitive really elevates him and he gets the Oscar. Under Siege. Yeah, Under Siege, another crazy villain performance, blown away, um, comes out, you know. Yeah, I mean, Andrew Davis, let's say kind of... I mean, he's got a lot to thank Andrew Davis for because he cast him in this, in like co-lead with Hackman. Uh, he cast him in Under Siege as the villain and then he cast him in The Fugitive, which is completely his breakout role. So Davis is his guy. And I suppose like, you know, Tony Lee Jones is clearly like his De Niro, uh, I guess. But, you know. mm. I remember seeing Tommy Lee Jones in, he pops up in Love Story, which I think is his first credit on, on his wiki page anyway, which is 1970. And even back then, thinking, like, he still looks kind of old. <laughs> he does. He plays, like, I think a college roommate or yeah. something like that yeah. in the movie. And you're like, how did this, like, <laughs> this elderly man get into this college campus? He just he would have been, yeah, he would have been 24 in that film. And uh, he's... <laughs> it's basically like a slightly smoothed version of the man you know now. <laughs> what up, fellow kids? <laughs> he actually pops up in the premiere episode of Charlie's Angels as well oh, wow. that Scott Watt and I watched. Yeah, as the fourth angel who they kick out. <laughs> <laughs> Too haggard, Jane's got fuck up. <laughs> Good morning, Charlie. I do love this period of these kind of actors like Hackman just kind of getting to the end of their career and just taking no shit. And it sounds like Hackman did this all the way to the end because you know by the time he hits Royal Tenenbaums and a couple other things, nearly Norsies, that's it for him, isn't it? And he retires. Um, Oh, wasn't he meant to be a nightmare on the Royal Tenenbaums? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. he's since apologized to Wes Anderson, because poor guy, like, still super young. It's like his third film. It's like, oh, my God, you're not ready for the Hackman. No, I mean, look at Wes Anderson at the end of the day. He's like a little kind of frail scarecrow man. Like, you know, like fucking <laughs> yeah. Hack- Hackman, vetching out and coming on, like, booming at him, probably in, like, full unforgiven mode. <laughs> like, Wes-, Wes Anderson is a Fantastic Mr. Fox stop-motion puppet. That's what he... <laughs> yeah. that's, that's the vibe he gives. I mean, literally, this is three years out from Unforgiven at the end of the day, which is one of Hatton's yeah. best performances. And it only elevates him more in terms of his kind of like, you know, absolute stuff. Because, I mean, really, he's one of the acting powerhouse greats, isn't he, in terms of Hollywood yeah. actors. I mean, he's, he's one of those people I have to remind myself that he's still alive because he's one of the few actors of his stature who retired and stuck to it. Like, you know, in terms of like, I mean, it's mental to me that Welcome to Mooseport is officially <laughs> his final film. Um, but it, like the other day, there was like, yeah, I can't remember when it was, but there was something with him appearing at some kind of event or something like that. And he was like, oh, yeah, Hackman's still fucking alive. Like, I completely yeah. forgot because you kind of like these people genuinely do retire and then disappear from public view. Mm. You, you can't just go, oh, they don't exist anymore. And then you're like, oh, shit, they are still like he just kind of looks like a normal granddad yeah, of like yeah, yeah, yeah. an 80 something year old man but like it feels like him and sean connery did the same sort of thing like piecing out in that early naughty space and with connery of course it was league of extraordinary gentlemen 
And I just love that story of him on that set of like just wanting to do one take and him like doing a shot of him walking down the street and then the director being like, let's go again. He was like, what? Why? <laughs> He's like, well, for, for the 18 million pounds and dollars I'm paying you, you can walk down a goddamn street. He's like, what? <laughs> I, I will never forgive Extraordinary Gentleman for renaming itself as LXG. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, you know, rest in peace, Kevin O'Neill, as he turns in his grave yet again at hearing that. It's interesting that those legends, because you want to imagine that they go out on top, but like both Welcome to Mooseport and LXG, I think it's more just like they're like, I got nothing left to give. Yeah, I've, had, like I've this, had enough. This experience. Jack Nicholson as well, he's another one who's who's bowed out yeah. gracefully and just gone like, you know, he made the best decision of his life when he refused to come out of retirement for uh, Louis C.K.'s online-only TV series, Horace and Pete, where he offered him, um, I think it's Alan Arkin who ended up playing the role, in uh, that he offered him his role and he turned him down. I'm like, good decision, Jack good decision <laughs> like uh you'd rather go out retired now in retrospect yeah so um another trivia note i had on this one was you know tommy lee jones appears in jfk uh, a couple years later and um ike pappas plays a reporter in this movie and he was a, an actual real life reporter he may still be alive i'm not 100 percent sure but in 1963 he was working for cbs news and he was interviewing lee harvey oswald when Jack Ruby pushed him out of the way and murdered Lee Harvey Oswald. So wow. there's some interesting, yeah, like real world parallels between kind of this reporter in this movie in a very like volatile situation and real life was kind of legendary for this moment. He did actually pass away in 2008. He did, okay, yeah. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Now, uh, Liam referred to it earlier. This movie was not a huge box office success. The budget was $16 million and domestically it did 10.6. And there are no international numbers available, and it would not shock me if this was not widely released internationally afterwards with a performance like that domestically. Yeah, it's hard because often you find with anything older than kind of like, you know, 2000 or something, or even uh, more recently in that, basically like pre-internet taking over everything, there tends to be not much information um in terms of like they used to usually have like sometimes they don't have any kind of boxes at all and then often they just have the domestic but not the worldwide i think it was like you know less special i'm sure it got a uk release um in regards to i mean it's you know it's a reasonably sized uh film and such like that i think it's probably just the information isn't there kind of thing and available like uh i'm just gonna have a look right imagine now. It doing all right down blockbuster you know on the vhs yeah. rental yeah there market. we go oh, yeah. it was released yeah. in the uk butter, fucking hell i mean this just shows how long i remember these days when it took ages for hollywood movies to come over here so released in the usa in 25th august 1989 how long does it take to come to the uk 15th of june 1990 so it's a 10 month wait <laughs> yeah. for the package like yeah that i mean that's <laughs> oh fucking that's not first class is it that's not even fucking second class no one no one dropping spoilers online back then you see <laughs> i'd <laughs> That's fire the FedEx guy if that was the thing I received. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah. not good. Not good. <laughs> so this movie landed at number 82 at the worldwide box office then uh, for the year between New York Stories, which was a compilation film, uh, sort of an anthology effort involving works by Martin Scorsese, Woody Allen, and Francis Ford Coppola, 
And then also the Sean Penn De Niro movie, We're No Angels, that I feel like has been completely forgotten to time. Uh, the top three for this year, number one was Batman. Number two was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And number three was Dead Poet Society. Oh, that's that's all right. That's an all right top three. Saw Dead Poet Society for the first time recently. It's it's okay. Like uh, wasn't wasn't particularly blown away, but I mean that's a good good top two. Batman and uh, Indiana Jones, definitely. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've just had a look at the old inflation calculator. So in today's <laughs> money, uh, this would have cost you thirty-eight, almost thirty-eight and a half million. You're spending on the package today. Like, uh, you know, which is reason. I mean, that's the kind of film, basically, the package based on that is the kind of film that doesn't get made that much in terms of yeah. cinema mm. release now. That's that starry mid budget level. Yeah. 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 You, this you is either, Netflix. Like... This is Netflix now. Netflix yeah. release. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And just uh, like final notes I had just to wrap up the behind the scenes. So, like, Andrew Davis would obviously go on and do. The Fugitive in 93, which would be massive. It feels in many ways like this movie's building towards stuff like Under Siege and The Fugitive. But obviously, Tommy Lee Jones' career would be catapulted as well, as we acknowledge. The last thing I noticed was there was this 2014 mini-documentary called The Package, Interview with Joanna Cassidy, that I stumbled across on IMDb. Normally, I don't really like talk about behind-the-scenes things from home video releases. But the synopsis on IMDb raised my eyebrows. It said... Interview with Cassidy is on the hesitant side, with the actress searching for the right words to describe her time with the package and her feelings for her co-stars and Davis. And I was like, oh, oh. Like, it sounded kind of, like, troubling. So I was like, I dug deeper, and I found DVD reviews of the ta- at the time, and they acknowledged this. And apparently it was just, she was very emotionally overwhelmed talking about how much she enjoyed working on the movie. But I, I was like, it really did send me down, like, a, a rabbit hole of, like, what what happened? And um, it seems like, yes, it sounds like it's a very emotional, like, six-minute documentary. I'd be curious to watch it. I don't have it available to me, but it sounds intriguing because it. the fact was every review I found for this home video release acknowledged that special feature. Mm. I want the documentary of Cam going deep on the making of the package and <laughs> yeah, what yeah, he yeah. finds <laughs> down that dark path. <laughs> Yeah, well, so we've got a bit of time before this episode comes out. So let's see if we can do some uh, spy work and see if we can track it down. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. If we can, we will put it in the show notes, a link, and you can get it. I'll, we'll put it up on our YouTube channel or something like that. But if not, sorry, folks. Well, it's beginning to look a lot like the review section of the podcast. So what we'll do, gents, uh, guests always go first. Let's go with Liam. You're up. What did you think of? The package. Yeah, I mean, I, I liked it. And, you know, I won't reveal my star rating now or anything like that, but I, I did, did hmm. like the film. It's certainly a lot better than Men in Black International, <laughs> which we came <laughs> on to speak about before. That I mean, that is not an accolade. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, it is... I mean, yeah, fuck it, I will reveal my star rating now because it is the <laughs> definition of a freestyle movie. Like, you know, in terms of this, a bit like Matt says, this is 1989, Andrew Davis. Now, Andrew Davis is someone who I kind of describe as a bit of a journeyman filmmaker. Um, but I don't mean that as an insult or anything like that, because being a journeyman filmmaker in 1989 was a very, very different proposition to what it is now. Like, back then, like, 
you would just get these guys who just knew how to put a picture together. And, you know, the, like you say, you watch this film, it's a fucking film. Like, yeah, you watch it, it feels cinematic, it feels kind of, but it feels big budget, like, you know, for, you know, what what it is and everything like that. It feels like, a, you know, a, a big movie. Um, and it's just, you know, it's well put together, it's well shot, well made, and like, you know, it just feels like a very, very professional production. I kind of think that carries on uh, later on in his career. Certainly with, I mean, The Fugitive is like an absolutely efficient machine of a movie. Like, you know, that is so well put together, but it's not flashy. It's just incredibly like efficient filmmaking. That's just uh, you know great. It's a great package, like as it were. I mean, like you know, <laughs> and it, like you say, I think the building blocks uh, to that kind of start here, and he continues to build on it with Under Siege, and then go into kind of you know the Fugitive and such like that. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, you have got Gene Hackman, and Tommy Lee Jones, two great actors, basically in the kind of co-leads of the good guy and spoiler bad guy. Um, when I first looked at the plot on uh, my Cinema Paradiso kind of rental packet, which is always a case of they always have whatever is obviously on the Blu-ray, like just stamped on the front of the kind of the rental kind of uh, postlet. And it always like cuts off like halfway through. Mm. So you only ever get like a little tease of like what the main <laughs> like plot is. I was looking at it and the bit that I was reading just described the thing of Gene Hackman's character having to escort Tommy Lee Jones's character like cross country. And so it didn't get to the other stuff. It just, so it made it sound like an espionage thriller reworking of the last detail with Jack Nicholson. Yeah. Thing, like, and I was like, right. Oh wow, that'd be interesting. This is going to be like a road trip between <laughs> like, yeah, Gene Hackman and Tony Jones at some point, someone's going to go after them. They're going to have to work mm-hmm. together. It's be run vibe. So I was, yeah, I was really surprised when literally that he gets ambushed and Tommy Lee Jones goes, and then he is very much the bad guy of the piece. I, I, genuinely wasn't expecting that so that was a shock for me um but yeah this is just a a really good tabe and sloppy like uh, efficient kind of thriller of the time really and it's got some nice action flourishes um in it and gene hackman kind of powerhouse performance in the in the middle he's doing his job there um but yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, like I say, very much a, a, a free star picture. Like, yeah, if you caught this on a Wednesday night on ITV back in the day with the news in between, you've been loving it. <laughs> well, you know, you, you had Men in Black International, and you're saying the package is better. Yes. So I can only say, as Yaz once said, the only way is up. And I'm glad you've, uh, I'm, I'm glad <laughs> we've uh, improved on our last film. But uh, Matt, what about you? What did you think? Yeah, no, this is this is a perfectly fine picture, as it as it were, and it's it's these kind of films from this era, these these sort of heavily political conspiracy thrillers, can be a bit a bit dry to me. I think I think it's an era of time where there's a lot of these being made, and I think they do vary in quality. And and you know, this one has all the ingredients to be solid, and it and it is solid. I don't think it's outwardly exceptional, but it has a lot of twists and turns as it goes. Um, the sort of opening like assassination attempt is really thrilling um i think the middle kind of section gets a bit bogged down 
in a bit of you know it's a series of investigating and a quick attack here and an escape and a a regroup and and so on and so on but then you know i genuinely thought the final 20 minutes for example were really really tense and it really kind of stuck the landing of of the of the finale but you know this is um this is something it's a bit of a dad movie i think it's definitely one where the action is in fits and starts uh it's not built around that but that's kind of suits the the tone and these kind of post-cold war um thrillers as well as well are really interesting you know all this all this sort of red scare stuff you know did rocky four teach no, no one anything um <laughs> <laughs> and uh and and yeah i think you know this whole idea when you when you kind of get down to the motivations of the villains as it were this idea of being against nuclear disarmament because they're acknowledging that it's only the threat of nuclear war that stops um sort of ground level war from happening is kind of really interesting in, in a sense of i'm sure there's a lot of truth in that and it's it's blurring this line of uh you know who's really who's really uh up to no good and, and out for the out for the greater cause but um yeah all the, all the sort of in, uh, ancillary characters here are a lot of interesting people as well you've got you know you've got the dad from home alone um you have uh the wonderful sherry ross as uh, General Hopkins, who is who I, I always know as the uh, military guy from Bill and Ted's Burgers Journey, uh, he must have made a career of playing army types, I think. Um, and yeah, all these little sort of components within this piece. Dennis Franz as well, of course, and Pam Greer. Um, so a really great supporting cast as well, where it feels like everybody gets uh, a little something to do. I was just going to say, Pam Greer practically a cameo in this, really. Just a few scenes. Yeah. I was really disappointed by that. When mm. I saw her in the cast, I was like, oh, Pam fucking Greer. Amazing. Like, I wasn't, because I've seen a bunch of her 70s movies and obviously seen Jackie Brown. But 80s, I was like, oh, I don't know what she was doing in the 80s, really. Like, so I was just like, that's really cool that she's going to be in it. And then, yeah, she's kind of like just in a few scenes and she's kind of barely recognizable because she's all kind of. Uh, kind of very much prim and proper like as a kind of army uh person she's killed off way too fast yeah. and it's a shame because it could have been an interesting really different role for her from the kind of uh black exploitation um kind of women she was playing in mm. the 70s and stuff like that yeah yeah i got really excited because i I've got two notes back to back where one says, "Oh, Zora from Blade Runner and Foxy Brown are teaming up. I love this." And then the next one is just, "And she's dead." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I made a note. I never trust a McAllister. Mm. And so when the dad turns up, I'm like, "Ah, oh, these guys—they're up to no good." Catherine O'Hara up to no good in most films she's into. And so uh, as soon as I knew he was on the screen, I was like, "This guy's going to be a villain," and he was. <laughs> oh, John Heard. Yeah, yeah. He was yeah, very oily. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the Pam Greer thing bummed me out because, like, she's one of the most dynamic movie stars of the 70s. And it just felt like when she hit the 80s, they just had no idea what to do with her. And Andrew Davis, to his credit, like, she had a pretty prominent role in Above the Law. So he obviously liked working with her and brought her back for this movie. But, like, this is a very forgettable turn mm. for Miss Pam Greer, who mm. obviously... But she will also be back in Bill and Ted's Burgers Journey. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. It, it really wasn't until that, like, uh, you know, Jackie Brown resurgence yeah. where they were suddenly like, oh, right. She's, like, incredible. Because even, like, I remember she popped up as, like, a, you know, a mom in Mars Attacks in, like, kind of a thankless role. One where you don't get to have a lot of fun. So, yeah, kind of a bummer for her. But uh, my overall thoughts was, like, this was... I found as of late, 
I have, I think I brought this up on the show or maybe it was on the Patreon, I can't remember, found a lot of enjoyment in going back and watching uh, some of these older Clint Eastwood kind of thrillers, the ones that at the time mm. I could not be bothered watching. I picked up a Clint Eastwood career box set for very cheap at a thrift uh, thrift store. And so I was watching stuff like Blood Work, Absolute Power, actually Absolute Power co-stars Gene Hackman, but movies of that era that at the time were not particularly well-reviewed, but you watch them now and they don't make movies like this anymore so they're kind of fun to sit and watch and that's kind of how i felt about the package where if i were to watch this in 1989 in comparison to a lot of the stuff coming out i wonder if i would have been very dismissive of it as you know some critics were i think it's actually decently reviewed but not strongly reviewed um it has elements that genuinely work i thought like there was some genuine tension going on here i like how the action can be really messy and that's something andrew davis does very well where I don't mean messy technically. I mean in terms of like, like there's a hit early in this movie where two you know hikers um, shoot down basically a car, and it is like this bombing of a car that's so messy it doesn't kill anyone on board. The car's on fire, crashing out of control, and they make it look like really chaotic and violent in a way that I think is very effective. I think he's an incredibly skilled action filmmaker, and I think for me what maybe holds this one back a little bit is that I can see all the DNA of him perfecting his skills that are going to pay off with his next two big movies under siege and, um, and the fugitive. It's like, you've got the guys all around the tables talking about, you know, exposition basically, which would become a huge part of under siege. You have the Chicago locations and Andrew Davis was, you know, Chicago born and used Chicago mm. in many of his movies, but you compare like the Chicago stuff in this movie to like what he does in the fugitive it feels like he's basically the built building the building blocks that are going to take him to the next plateau. And so it's fun to go back and watch this one. But if I'm like to start putting together the great action films of kind of this rough era, this one's not going to rank particularly highly, even though I did enjoy the performances and just the overall vibe, because this is not a vibe we have anymore. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. I think there's a lot of that now where loads and loads of movies, of this kind of era that were the kind of, you know, um, big release but reasonably maybe kind of like slightly b-level but like mid-level um films that at the time got kind of just dismissed or lost in the shuffle which now people go back to and are like oh this is fucking and it, it literally is just because there is a certain level of filmmaking craft present in this era uh, a lot of that, of course, has to do with things being shot on film at the end of the day um, that just isn't as present anymore in kind of mainstream movie making. Uh, I don't mean that in a way of, oh, they don't make good films anymore, because like, obviously they do. <laughs> There's loads of great films coming out. But obviously, we live in a very digital age. There aren't many people uh, making uh, shooting films on actual film stock anymore. And there, yeah, there just is a certain level of precision that comes with shooting on film because it ain't cheap shooting on film, lads. Like, I tell you that. Like, you know, and whereas digital, you can run and run. And unless you're a very, very skilled director of photography, um, shooting on digital at the end of the day, it can look very flat and stuff. Don't get me wrong. Obviously, there are, like I say, there are amazing cinematographers working now who can make 
digital look fantastic. Uh, but uh, I think if you're, you know, not such a skilled cinematographer, it, it can look really kind of uh, televisual, as it were, a word that doesn't really work anymore because now TV <laughs> is so big budget. But you know what I mean. Yeah, like, and you go back to this kind of era and watch, like, a lesser movie from Andrew Davis or John McTiernan or something. It's like, they just really pop in a way that if you were to watch more of a action programmer nowadays, they just don't even look like they belong from, like, the similar kind of release. Mm. I think, from my point of view, you know, when Cammy Baby slipped a spy film under the tree for me this year... <laughs> I was uh, I was very excited. I was hoping to have a wonderful Christmas time. This Christmas became more of a festivus. Uh-oh. Uh, which is a bit of a Seinfeld reference. But I, I, not that I didn't enjoy this film. There's stuff to enjoy. But Cam's talking about like how he can see Andrew Davis sort of perfecting his craft and you know has better films coming up. For me, I couldn't help but think of the films that this film is drawing from and not improving on. There's there's DNA of things like the Day of the Jackal all throughout this film. It's it's a lot of the same story, but it it actually like diminishes what that film does, Day of the Jackal, and and so you get this kind of actiony version of that film, but it doesn't raise uh raise the game of of the story or anything like that. It doesn't do anything to add to this particular story or plot. So I enjoyed the performances. I enjoyed lots of these sequences. But when I when it all came together, I just was uh, left a little bit underwhelmed, I have to say. Well, when you look at the Jackal, the original Day of the Jackal, like that is a masterpiece. I guess we can say at the very least, this movie, if it is kind of a loose retelling of that sort of story, it's at least better than the Bruce Willis Jackal. It does it better than that. <laughs> I'll give you that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. but that's the thing. I bet if you watched the Bruce Willis Jackal now, you'd probably go, oh, but it's so much better than if they made the Jackal today <laughs> on Netflix. Or something. Mm, <laughs> yeah. no, I don't we, know. we did it quite recently. I, I can confirm it's not. Oh, still, okay. It's I mean, I haven't great. seen it. And this the day of the Jackal I haven't seen, which is a big blind spot for me that I haven't seen Day of the Jackal. There's loads of times where I've almost watched it. I just haven't got around to it. I do want to see it. Mm. It's def definite blind spot. No, it, it's, it's definitely a film to check out. I just, I mean, for me, it was, I, I knew what the film was riffing off of. And I was hoping I would get more than what I was given. Not that I didn't like what I was given, but if you're going to retell this story with like an 80s action edge to it, make it good. And, and, and something was missing for me. Yeah. There's a podcast I listened to, Big Picture Show, that introduced the term, like, say, the garbage crime movie. And what they're saying is it doesn't mean it's a bad movie, but they're kind of those, like, pulpy crime movies that you would really enjoy. They're the ones that people genuinely like watching on TV and, you know, rewatching on home video or whatever. This is kind of like the garbage conspiracy movie where it's not really aspiring to be kind of a three days of the condor level thriller, but in terms of being a like programmer that you would just watch a kind of fun conspiracy story with like action set pieces, recognizable characters, and kind of a plot that you can just kind of follow with your eyes closed because you've seen similar things. I think this one works that way. Like it's kind of comfort food, conspiracy thriller stuff, but it's definitely, I agree, Scott, like not raising the bar at all. Well, it's either like an extended episode of like a prestige TV 
political thriller type thing or a very condensed season like it has a feels quite 24 like in my you can imagine a 24 season doing this and and they do in many ways yeah yeah i literally have written a note very 24 yeah. with enemies inside the american government like it doing that kind of mm-hmm. fake out of oh it's kind of you know is it yeah the, the this other country in the back oh no it's people yeah. within our own government who are the bad guys kind of thing like you know it feels very 24 like you know if they made it again now it would come out as a as a six-part limited series on paramount plus or something <laughs> I mean, it probably is (laughs) going to happen at some point. I wouldn't be surprised at the end of the day. Literally every single random car film gets remade as a 10-part Netflix series now. So, you know, uh, I'm sure it'll be happening. Well, Christmas surprise. Scott and I are actually exec producing (laughs) a six-part package miniseries for uh, Apple (laughs) TV coming to you in uh, 2023. You're getting Hackman out of retirement. I actually actually like a larger (laughs) package. Can we get 10 episodes? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the biggest package you could ever dream of. Um, well, let's uh, let's keep up the festive cheer and talk about things that we liked before we sort of go in for the dislike. So uh, let's go for uh, Liam first on this one. Something you liked that you want to focus on? Um, I really, really liked just the message of the film, to be honest, because, uh, Matt, you talked about the whole nuclear mm. disarmament uh, thing, because, you know, this is set around this nuclear disarmament tree. We, this seems, again, you know, like you say, derivative. I think there's been about 30 films like, set around a nuclear disarmament treaty or something like that, you know, and then there's someone within the government trying to stop it. Um, and at the end, what I like, it ends with this, big argument between Hackman and Hurd's characters where they're kind of, you know, uh, having this ideological kind of debate um, essentially, like about the nuclear weapons and, you know, because Hackman is very much like, yeah, nuclear disarmament is a good thing. I don't mean... (laughs) just feels amazing to have a hero at the centre of a major Hollywood film like being pro-nuclear disarmament, to be completely honest. You know, it's like, feels like it'd be less likely to happen now. Um, And literally, like, Heard is screaming at him, like, well, we want him! And Hatman goes, who? A bunch of nutcases! And, like, it's this thing of, like, they're going back and forth and, like, biting chunks at each other about this kind of, like, debate. And it's really, really electric stuff. And Hackman's fantastic. You can really kind of punch the air and root for him, um, like, in this sequence. And I just, yeah, loved that message of just, like, essentially, yeah, our hero is pro this and it's a good thing and, and the message of the film is very much like yeah we, we, we you know it's, it's like a positive hopeful look at the future that unfortunately we still have not <laughs> reached so i really liked the message and like of of the film and kind of the hopefulness of it well it's interesting because i i think i was reading this earlier the film was shot before the fall of the berlin wall so it was all about sort of the hopefulness of the end of the cold war and the, you know, bringing down the Iron Curtain. But by the time the film's out, the Berlin Wall's down. And so it's kind of like it loses an edge a little bit. And that's right. one of the re- reasons people think it may not have been as popular looking back because it's, well, we had this. We've had this sort of uh, nuclear you know, stabilization around the world and everyone shook hands, uh, which I find interesting. And, and I, I want to point out, you, you know, you said you liked the sort of, uh, the, the sort of, uh, the main crux of this film there's actually a film that's very near and dear to both of your hearts it's very similar to this when it comes to things like disarmament that uh, jumped out to me i think you've probably spoken about it on your podcast 
Oh, I'm seeing blank blank stairs. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 you're, you're talking about a Star Trek film, like uh, I would imagine, but in my head, my my head has gone blank. But there definitely is a a Star Trek film about these things. See, this is now. See, listeners, <laughs> Star Trek podcast from a non-Trekky perspective. It might have taken me longer to get there, but here we are. <laughs> <laughs> But it, it struck me quite uh, quite early on in the film. But you know, Star Trek Six has a lot of the same things going on. It's like uh, you know, the, the Federation and the Klingons are sort of coming together, but you've got like the bad guys on both sides, even in the Federation, working together to bring the whole alliance down. And it, that's the same story that's running through this film. That's very true. Came out two years after this as well. So what we're saying is Undiscovered Country nicked everything from the package. However, they made the superior <laughs> film, so it doesn't matter. I mean, I guess they would have had a little bit more perspective, which would help um, on where things were going. Uh, what I liked about this movie, I mean, I'll have other things, but like in regards to what you were saying, Liam, this movie doesn't talk down to the audience. And a lot of action movies nowadays are like, Keep it simple. Keep it simple. You know, we've talked about like the Taken movies, for example, on the show. And it's like those were very popular mainstream action releases. Kind of that, you know, you could call them garbage action movies or whatever you want to, you know, refer to them as B-movie action. And like they are like as stripped down as possible so as to allow every possible audience member to watch them. And what I liked about this movie, and maybe it didn't fare well for the movie's box office... But you kind of have to pay attention to what's going on. They are talking about the political situation at the time. They're not dumbing it down hugely. They're expecting you to, you know, follow along with them. So I, I give them points for that. It's not necessarily trying to break the mold and become the most brilliant of all conspiracy thrillers, but it's at least not dumbing it down and making it insulting. I mean, it feels grown up, doesn't it? That's the word. Mm -hmm. Like in a way that films seldom do now. You get, you get a lot of films intended for adults or old audiences that don't even feel this kind of ground level grown up i guess and it, it's a weird kind of way where back then you could you could have movies like this that that did hit big and this one didn't particularly do so but the ones that did were often ones um you know you compare the uh the sort of top 10 grossing films of the year from the 70s and 80s compared to now obviously a completely different landscape but you would see films of this uh of this stature like hitting you know, well with critics and with and with moviegoers. Uh, well, I was just saying, Matt, that you you use the term dad movie, uh, which I think you've picked up off your Sundog Deep co-host Daryl. Uh, it's all it's, it's all the submarine films we cover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's interesting. I I knew you were going to say it, and I find it very interesting what you're saying in terms of now we don't really have films like this in fact the films we have like this so i suppose you know now if we look at a recent kind of spy thriller the gray man um you know i i enjoyed the gray man uh but i think compared to this you'd say that it's a lot more juvenile mm. than this film kind of thing this film feels a lot more adult and literally we refer to these kind of films in this era as dad movies but actually back in those days, i mean i'm 37 um you know like back in those days like yeah i that would have been like our dads would have been that age watching these kind mm. of like films and everything like that and it's weird that we go now we kind of in this state of rest of moment, so we go oh damn yeah that's that's for like older kind of boring kind of like 
grey card people because we're still young and youthful and watching kind of more kind of you know fun poppy kind of films like and actually it's like no these these were designed for you know archive age archive is mature audiences um and you know although this film didn't hear the box office lots and lots of movies of its ilk and type uh did and were very successful like you say if you go back and look at the top 10s for 70s 80s you see tons of originals loads of kind of mid-budget intelligent adult thrillers Mm -hmm. and stuff like that like you know it's just it's a very different era well i think you hit the nail on the head then i think what the main difference is you could argue is is the casting like you could have this sort of film now and the ones that happen now you have your ryan gosling chris evans leading it Back then, you can lead it with your Hackman and Tommy Lee Jones. They're not heartthrobs. They're real. They're real characters. They're real, real guys, you know. And I think that's what's, I think that's what's lacking in in sort of modern cinema, if you like. Th- these kind of movie star everymans that would would fill it. And you see it through to stuff like I remember this argument being made for Jurassic Park and Jurassic World, where Jurassic Park is a film led by Sam Neill, you know, who's who's just a normal guy. Like he seems like a normal dinosaur science man what was it paleontologist whatever no, it is dinosaur science um, man whereas that's uh dinosaur science man and then you get to <laughs> world and it's like well throw chris pratt in there and it's like there's there's a definite step sure. away from casting real middle-aged men in 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 leading roles where they do also have romantic subplots as well if this was made now, Johnny Gallagher would have had eight pack abs, hundred <laughs> percent, and we would get to see them at some point. I think just to speak to that point, um, what I always identify with sort of dad films is you tend to find there's a lot of they're always right, and there's there's no chinks in their armor. These these sort of Gene Hackman characters of this this era, and that's why I always think of like in in dad films, it's like Taken as well as the same sort of thing. Liam Neeson does no wrong according to the film, despite the fact that in the third one he drugs his own daughter who's pregnant. But we won't dig into that <laughs> because he's Liam Neeson. Uh, but now, like, you look at The Grey Man, Ryan Gosling is a is a flawed character. He's got these quirks to him, and he's a bit weird, which is... Maybe that's an evolution of storytelling. Maybe that's a de-evolution of storytelling. I'm not one to sort of say, but uh, that's that's how I identify dad films. But Matt, something you liked about The Package. Well, Liam kind of hit a great point with all the uh, the more critical intellectual ideas of around the messaging in this film. So I'm going to pick out a few, just a quick handful of smaller things. So I guess number one, I, I like how this film uses the Christmas setting. Um, I'm sure we'll get onto it as well. But, you know, it's kind of very background. Um, it's it's very ancillary. It doesn't override everything, but it's it's very much there. And you can just about get away with watching it as a Christmas watch and feeling a bit of Christmas cheer, I think. But it's a nice little just flavor to the to the story to help it stand apart. Uh, I really like that diner shootout that you get about two thirds through. I think that's really just sort of tense and, and like you guys said, very messy as well in the way that's executed in a good way. Um, and of course, you get a great old Chicago car chase with Hackman behind the wheel much as he was in French Connection. So it's great yes. to see a kind of very, uh, you know, obviously very practical uh, location-based car chase with, uh, yeah, Hackman, Hackman driving. Even the part where there's like the neo-Nazi rally in the streets and they're just trying to like get through that group to get to the the operative, yeah. um, that scene is like really well shot too. Like there's genuine tension to the action filmmaking throughout this movie. And I was so refreshed to see that because it's not, it's not commonplace now to just kind of throw on an action B movie and see legitimately well shot action. 
Yeah, and that car chase is well done and well shot and well staged. Uh, but I will say they are 100% trying to recreate the French Connection mm, yes. car chase. Because, I mean, literally, not only is it Hackman at the wheel, obviously, but there's really similar shots like in it to the French Connection car chase. There's, like, the performance from Hackman is similar. So, like, it seems like he's been told to kind of paint <laughs> his performance in French Connection the way he's at the wheel and stuff like that. And kind of, like, banging the wheel, basically, like, like, you know, getting really, really angry. And there's some, yeah, there's some really decent stunts in there, but, but I can't. It's almost foolhardy to try and recreate. Like, I mean, literally, the French Connection car chase is, like, you know, one of the most iconic action sequences in all cinema, like, you know, you're gonna you can be tough yeah. to kind of compete with it. But it is it's still fun. Well, like I think this just dovetails into my other like, which or my major like, which is Gene Hackman. And the movie has a real understanding of the iconography of Gene Hackman, which ties right into that French, you know, connection car chase there, where they know how to use him as a movie star. And it almost feels in some ways like it's almost evoking the past eras where you'd have like John Wayne as an aging man playing roles that he was just a little too old to be playing. Gene Hackman was like getting towards 60 when he shot this movie and he's like leading a team of like 20 something year old soldiers. And he's the guy who's like the ultimate badass of the group. And I'm like, would this be the case? Would we send out like a something like 60 year old soldier? I don't know about this, but the authority of the actor and the gravitas he carries and what we bring to the movie through our relationship with all of his work really works very well in the movie's favor. Well, you totally buy that he is that guy. I mean, they even point out in the film, hey, you shouldn't be a sergeant by now. You should be like a something or other. Like, that's a very low rank as far as rank goes. If he's been a, a lifelong military man and he's in his mid-50s, not only should he be retired yeah. by now, but uh, <laughs> yeah, he, he wouldn't be leading a team of, uh, I, I guess, people on guard duty. That just wouldn't be happening. He'd be pushing pencils somewhere. He's just pulling a maverick. He's, he's, that's where he wants well, to be. I yeah. was literally <laughs> just thinking that. I was about to say, are you saying we bring Hackman out of retirement <gasps> for the package Gallagher? <laughs> oh. I, I'd be all for it. I mean, you guys have sort of taken all of my main likes. Uh, Hackman was going to be the one I was going to mention, if not. But I will just point out, I, I really like some of the sort of action sequences. I think the car park shootout is actually quite fun. Um and and seeing everyone and and you know Joanne Cassidy being chased around so we haven't sorry Joanna Cassidy we haven't spoken about her too much I think she's fantastic Dennis Franz is is great in what he's given I would like to have seen more Pam Greer but yeah I I, I think there's a couple of performances I want to talk about maybe in my dislike section but for Hackman uh, John Hurd Dennis Franz I think do a lot with a little Franz is so cast to type because, you know, the next year he's in Die Hard 2, NYPD Blues a few years later. But, like, this is the type of role he's so good at. And there's not a lot on the page for him, but the whole, like, family man stuff really worked for me. And I was legit worried that he would die. Yeah. Yeah, I, may, I totally 100% thought he was, I literally have written here, Fort Franz was dead meat for sure after the shootout at the, like, the diner. I was like, and he gets shot. I was like, well, obviously he's, he's dead. And when he survived, I was like, what? 
Like, oh, it was really, really smart. But I fucking love a bit of Franz. I mean, because Franz basically just plays Sipowitz, doesn't he? Whatever he's doing, he basically plays Sipowitz from NYPD Blue. And that's fine, because he's fucking great at it. And <laughs> whenever he turns up, I'm like, oh, bit of Franz. Amazing. Like, you know, and of course, he provides one of the big Christmas moments, because we get Christmas at Sipowitz's, where <laughs> they go round his place, and there's a big Christmas tree there, and everything like that, and his kids are running around. I actually wrote down all the different kind of like Christmas moments we get in this film because early on like very very early on when they're having the big kind of meeting about the treaty someone announces it's the holiday season because he says like oh in the spirit of the festive season or something like that I was like oh okay cool they've got it in early plus there's snow like yeah so literally we're feeling for the festival already there's a festive grotting at one point, uh, <laughs> where there's Christmas decorations in uh, one of the uh, a woman's home, Walter's wife, who gets killed, and I swear she got garroted with Christmas lights. <laughs> like, uh, well, I'm pretty sure that's what happened. Um, but yeah, there is there's little Christmas uh, touches all the way through. There's carol singers in the city. I'm pretty sure the ending bit is actually set on Christmas Eve. I think um, so. But yeah, there's not huge amount, but there's, you know, it's, it's that kind of enemy of the state. There's Christmas trees in the background, but a little bit more because at least they mention it's Christmas kind of like within this. It feels a little more Christmassy than, say, like Three Days of the Condor, which is also a Christmas spy movie. But like this one really works it in a lot throughout. Yeah. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Independent podcasting much like the spy game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course constructing a top secret volcano lair, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right, as you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? The Long Kiss Goodnight commentary is live, and there's more holiday fun. We're getting a little romantic this season because we're looking at the 2003 romantic comedy, Love Actually. And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy heart today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards. But... Before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. Um, well, speaking of Christmas, it's, uh, it's getting cold outside. So let's talk about things that we didn't quite like. Uh, let's go to Matt first. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess the, it's, it, what I like about it is, is, you know, the, the sum of its parts. So I think as a whole, it doesn't quite reach uh the heights it could and i think you know this is exemplified i think that middle section where it gets a little little sloppy where you know we lose pam greer and then it's it kind of plods along a bit as it realizes maybe that the the plot here is kind of all about the setup and what kicks things off and then having the reveal of tommy jones's character and what he's up to and then ultimately the kind of very tense almost real-time element of of the way the finale plays out so i think there's a there's a bit in the middle where there's a bit of a bit of flab and it feels that's where it feels maybe the most kind of tv movie as well as it kind of uh saves its money for the for the end half hour um 
Uh, and yeah, and I think ultimately it's just not all that memorable either. You know, there's the the actors are all pretty great, um, but character-wise, there's no one really iconic. Like Gallagher's not not in the pantheon of, of great protagonists. Really, it is it is. You take Pac-Man that back. We kind of <laughs> no. Well, with this legacy call, will prove me wrong. I'm sure. Um, uh, but yeah, I think it's one that it's uh, fairly enjoyable in the moment. But it's um, yeah, it's it's nobody's favorite film. Should we say? Oh, whoa, don't spoil the Knockless vote yet. Hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> uh, Liam, what about you? Something you didn't like? Um, I think Tommy Lee Jones is slightly oddly used in this movie. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's before he becomes a kind of big star, and it kind of feels like it. Like, when he's introduced, he kind of, like, comes across like he's meant to be playing, like, a younger, cheeky, chappy character. I know that Tommy Jones looks old, like whatever he's doing, but he is, you know, he isn't young. Can he play young? At the end of the day. Well, yeah, exactly. I can't imagine Tommy Jones playing a child. (laughs) Steve Buscemi was uh, more impressive as a young man with a skateboard in that scene from whatever that show was. 30 Rock. He looked younger from 30 Rock. That was it. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I kind of felt like that was almost deliberate because he's actually pretending to be someone younger in those opening uh, scenes. So I was kind of like, oh, maybe that's actually quite like clever kind of acting. But then he never really gets developed too much because when I when I look at the poster and it's got Hackman and uh, Tommy Lee Jones on the poster, which is a classic case of a poster being kind of uh, developed later, I think, to because Tommy Lee Jones has become a bigger star later. So on the Blu-ray case and stuff like that, they've got to get both of them on the poster. But if you actually look at the original poster um, that was released for it, which I'm looking at now, Hackman is completely front and center actually says hackman like second name like cruise style and tommy jones is relegated to a tiny little kind of like picture postcard uh kind of like passport photo in the bottom right hand corner uh alongside um joanna Casti. uh so this is very much hackman's kind of film at the time so he is the lesser role but it feels like you've got gene hackman and tommy jones in a film it should be hackman versus lee jones but that just wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been the meeting of two powerhouses at the time and that i in, in retrospect, I can feel can only feel disappointing. Uh, it, my assumption was, like as I said, is literally that he was going to play this guy who's you know this disgraced uh, soldier, and then they were going to go on the road trip together. He was going, someone's going to try and kill him. He was going to discover that actually, you know, he's a great hero, and the reason he's being fucked over is because he knows the truth. And then they were going to team up and like, you know, go against it. And, and I totally thought it was going to be like a sort of buddy cop spy movie with them two. And of course, it isn't. And I kind of think that's almost like at this point a lost opportunity. I don't really feel like we can blame the film for that because they wouldn't have known what they had at the time. But it just feels like there's kind of like a more interesting uh, or at least more entertaining film within there. You know, it's almost two hours. It's like one hour 48. 
think probably be slightly shorter, tighten it up a little bit. Not not too much, you know, because there's a lot of kind of plot and stuff to put in there. There are some good action beats uh, throughout. Uh, but, you know, occasionally it veers into being a bit workmanlike. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's definitely nothing I hated in this, but like uh, Matt says, uh, Gallagher is, you know, not one of the great protagonists. It very much is massively elevated by it just being Hackman. Basically, if someone else, if an also ran kind of Hollywood star of the time is playing this role, it, it's you're dead in the water. I feel like Hackman elevates the film massively. Well, it's interesting to note looking at that poster you mentioned, uh, the billing is different to how it is on IMDb. It's Gene Hackman, then Joanna Cassidy, then Tommy Lee Jones. So, Which is in the movie yeah, too. Yeah, and, and to be fair, it is a buddy cop drama, but with Gene Hackman and Joanna Cassidy. That's really what it is. And, and I, I suppose like I'll pivot onto one of my dislikes really quickly, is how they really underserve Joanna Cassidy towards the end of the film. She has a great setup. You know, she's she reminds me of, uh, weirdly reminds me of Kate Mulgrew's character in Remo Williams, of all people. Like, she's a military woman on a mission. She is out for the truth. Uh, but then, much like Kate Mulgrew in Remo Williams, in the third act, she's just uh, sort of doting around. Uh, yeah, and Joanna Cassidy in this film is basically at home looking after the kids. Yeah. yeah. Whereas she's like a, you know, a, a, a lieutenant in the military. She should be having a more active role. And she is at the start, but then just sort of disappears. And I think that's a real detriment to the film. It's not a shock in this type of movie from 1989 to have her kind of lose agency towards the end of the movie. That's so common. But that doesn't mean that that makes it enjoyable to watch now. Like, you want to see more because Joanna Cassidy, like, this was, I think, a year after Roger Rabbit. So this was, like, a real career bump for her. And, yeah, like, she's more than capable in the first half of the movie. And I like her sparring sessions with um, with um, Gene Hackman. Like, more of it. But, yeah towards the back half but also to be fair this kind of falls in the pam greer problem too this movie doesn't have a lot of time for its female characters it's ultimately going to come down to gene hackman kicking in a door and shooting down tommy lee jones like that's what's <laughs> driving the movie and just to what liam's saying i think i'm just going to make this my dislike which is the tommy lee jones character is like they don't really develop him and it's for a specific reason is because they don't want you to know what he's up to which then results in the movie playing fast and loose. Oh, there he is. Look at him just walk around the street. At one point, he's dressed like um, Luigi from For Your Eyes Only. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. Now he's dressed like a priest. Okay. Uh, and it's really... He's all a master of disguise, isn't he? <laughs> he's the next Dana Carvey. And it's like, um, you know, it's all for this reveal that he is there to, you know, assassinate uh, this Soviet ruler. And it's like, okay... Like, they've actually hidden the motivation throughout the movie, which is fine if you want to pull the rug out from the, the audience, but it makes it tough to get particularly invested in what that character is doing through the entire course of the movie, because you have no idea. No idea. And also, it gives you this sort of really interesting setup with him at the start, when they're on the plane ride, Gene Hackman and Tommy Lee Jones. There's like a really good sort of chemistry between the two of them. You want to see that explored more, but they're separated almost instantaneously after that. And Tommy Lee Jones is basically left to his own devices. And I think he has more... Uh, costume changes than the 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 villain in the jackal. I don't know who played that now. <laughs> I think he's just called the jackal. Yeah. Um, and it's it's funny, like Scott, you sent me um just before this recording, we were gonna do it. You sent me just like some interviews because I was having trouble, as I mentioned up front, digging up information on this movie. 
and there was an interview with Tommy Lee Jones from the press tour. And I really felt bad for the reporter because she's interviewing Tommy Lee Jones, who's not known to be the friendliest of interviews. And this is a younger Tommy Lee Jones. I don't know. Maybe he was more of a bundle of joy back then. But there's a point where she says to him, like, I really loved the gestures you made in your with your face in this movie. And he's just like, yeah, thanks. And it's like you could see that she was searching for things to really talk to him about with the performance because most of it is him silent on screen throughout. Yeah, 100%. I think for my dislike, just to sort of wrap us up, is I think I, I find the plot to be somewhat indecipherable at times. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, I, I like a challenging spy film with the best of them. It's kind of what we talk about here from time to time. But And you talk about Tommy Lee Jones' motivations being obscured. There's this whole, whole other like patsy assassin built into this story that I watched these films twice to really get my head around a lot of them. And it took two watches to figure out what the patsy was there for. And there's this whole like neo-Nazi subplot that actually doesn't mean anything to the overall story because Tommy Lee Jones' character is going to assassinate the chap either way. It's just a cover. But once you start to like pick at those seams, the tapestry starts to fall apart because you think, like, why did the sort of general uh, send Sergeant Gallagher on the mission with Tommy Lee Jones after knowing that, um, that the, sorry, the colonel, played by John Hurd, and he would be able to connect the dots. He's he's actually like making his own mission fail by doing that, and so I I found it a very strange choice. And throughout, like it's it's more about hanging out with the characters and really telling you what the plot is. But like it's it's trying to tell you to like be wary of what's going to happen. You've got shots of Tommy Lee Jones using his rifle and doing like target practice and things like that. Like oh, he's out to get them and all this sort of disguise work and he's doing some spy stuff, but it. It's not like it's leaving breadcrumbs for you to follow. It, it it just has like one little exposition dump at the end to explain the patsy, which you have to really listen for, like Cam mentioned at the top. And if you don't hear that, none of it makes sense. Yeah, it's like it's the type of movie that is quite convoluted and labyrinthine when you watch it. But I don't know that when you go back and connect the dots, it rewards that attention. It's like it's mostly there as just sort of this canvas to have action sequences some great star turns from like Gene Hackman and Dennis Franz, but you're not going to sit there and connect all the dots on a rewatch and be like, Oh, this just raised this movie up to a whole other level. Mm. The ones that really work, are the ones where once you do rewatch and connect the dots and know where it's going, it elevates it. Like yeah, exactly that. As opposed to makes you from the very start, maybe be like, Oh, I can see all the things that don't matter or, <laughs> or just detract in other ways. Uh, and that must be a really hard thing to do, you know, but it's because uh, I think getting through by the skin of your teeth to the end in some sort of sense of being a satisfying uh, journey, but not wanting anyone to think twice about it is like one thing. But then it's like, yeah, repeat watchability can go right down the toilet if uh, it just makes you go, wait a minute. <laughs> well, it's um, I, you think about the Day of the Jackal, the film we've referenced several times in this review throughout you're looking at both the inspector and the jackal on a mission to catch each other in a way and also for the jackal to take out charles de gaulle so there's the whole assassination angle built into it 
but you see the Jackal going through the machinations of training, getting his target, picking his spot. You don't see Tommy Lee Jones really doing any of this. Yeah. So you don't know why he's doing it or what he's doing. There's no tension built there. You've just got Sergeant Gallagher in this case, or um, the sort of inspector in the Day of the Jackal, chasing something he doesn't really understand until right at the end when he understands what's going on. And so I think the viewer is just not brought along with it. And I don't think it's sort of doing that storytelling thing of holding the people at bay and giving you snippets, which that works. It's just holding you at bay and, as Cam said, just giving you some action sequences instead. But you do get to see Tommy Lee Jones smoking a pipe at one point, and you also get to see him in a very nice red shirt priest disguise at one point, which I was like, oof, that's a stylish priest going down there. Tommy Lee Jones. I loved how he was just kind of like, look, if I've got to disguise myself as a priest... I'm doing it with style. Like, yeah, he, he was thinking it. He was thinking ahead to Will Smith and Men Black. Goes like, I make this look good. Like, <laughs> <laughs> if you like, uh, if you like spies and silly disguises, you may just actually enjoy the Jackal. <laughs> okay, well, I, I do very much want to see Day of the Jackal. Like, um, the the film's very much on the watch list. Not too sure about the uh, Bruce Willis one. Oh um, no, I mean the Bruce Willis. Oh, one. you that mean is the Bruce Willis one? Okay. Bruce okay. Willis changed his costume like 10 times in the film. It's ridiculous. We tracked it on our review back in the day. Um, well, I, <laughs> I suppose before we get to the ultimate question of this podcast, I'm just going to throw it out for any final notes. Uh, Liam, Matt, do you have anything for us? Uh, I mean, literally at one point, just another note about uh, Christmas. At one point, a character says uh, to a woman, so you sit on Santa's lap. Did you tell him I was a good boy? So there you go. Very more festive fun from the package. Nothing else from me. I think if anything, though, it does make me want to see more of these films as opposed to less, which is good. Um, And a lot of the the 70s classics I need to check out. And um, Parallax View being number one. Oh, you've not seen uh, Parallax View? No, but I've noticed it is on Paramount Plus, which I do now have because of Spotlight. Oh, mate, Parallax View is incredible. But even these ones from like the early 90s, I want to check out some more. So um... Me and David Trumbull did a presentation on Parallax View together in uh, back at uni in our film production degree. Full presentation, got a first for it, mate. Boom. The, that, the true, the true power insane. couple, the, the true buddy yeah, couple. Yeah, exactly. We were the real uh, Tony Jones and uh, Hackford I mean, in this film. Well, they should have been. <laughs> Trumbull and Dempsey. That is a name yeah, of a cop show, yeah, anyway. Yeah, right? he's, he's a great, great flick. But also, have you seen the Harrison Ford Jack Ryan movies, like Patriot Games and Clear and Present Danger? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, could do a rewatch. Clear and Present Danger, sure. which you know link john bishop did rewrites on i actually think is the uh like before i saw them i was pretty sure patriot games has the better reputation but i think clear and present day just the better of those two movies definitely so you mm. know if he did rewrites on that i think i just remember our spotlight co-host paul showing me those in in that time period when he would show me everything where my film education came from in like college and just being like christ patriot games clear and present danger like i know you like harrison ford paul but these are these are boar snore and you know it took a while to like warm up to those i swear i reckon if you watch clear and present danger again now if you're wanting to see more of these kind of movies really well made just efficient kind of thrillers like clear and present danger mate you're in for a treat we haven't tackled them yet, but you may have just booked your next appearance whenever we get round to one of those uh, Jack <laughs> Ryan films. Um, Cam, do you have anything for us? 
I just had a couple small little things. Uh, there's a lot of Uzis in this movie. That is so of that 80s, early 90s action period. I was down for it. Yeah. And just lastly, Joanna Cassidy. Let's give her all a trophy, people. She did a whole running scene in high heels. The Jurassic World. The Bryce Dallas Howard of a day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She did it mm-hmm. first. That's right. Uh, I had one note left, and I actually mentioned this off air, and I annoyed a lot of people with it, so I'm going to do it on air. I think the package is more of a Christmas film than Die Hard. Yeah, what what the fuck are you chatting about, mate? Like literally, <laughs> like where are you where are you pulling this from? How is it? Like, yeah, more I don't know where, how a Christmas party movie. What the Christmas party is in the background, and you hear a couple of the songs, but that's about it. Like every scene is littered with Eve, Christmas stuff. I know it's at Christmas Eve, but like the plot doesn't even the plot in this film is based around like it being Christmas and like the the big coming together of everyone. They even like in the meeting mention Christmas. And the film keeps mentioning Christmas, whereas Die Hard is just kind of in the background. Are there any one-liners based around Christmas in this film? Yeah, that one has ho, ho, ho. Now I have a machine gun. Yeah, exactly. Plus, the thing is, I think Die Hard, it literally pretty much opens with the Run DMC like Christmas song um, <laughs> yeah. and like it's set at the Christmas party he's coming home for Christmas like you know in terms of uh, I'm pretty sure it ends with a Christmas song as well yep. uh, I think that the whole I mean literally someone start tried to start the Die Hard Christmas debate in our work meeting the other day and I was like I'm not having this conversation you quit your job I'm not having this fucking conversation <laughs> it's a fucking Christmas movie it ends here. We draw a line under it. I think, like, whereas here, I think it's more incidental. Like I say, I like it. I like that they bring it in at the beginning. It's almost like you know, peace and goodwill to all men. That's why they're doing it on Christmas Eve and stuff like that. But really, it's mostly incidental. Christmas trees in the background. Feels like they've just gone. It's set at Christmas because we were shooting at Christmas and we didn't want to explain their Christmas trees in the background. You know. It's very atmospheric mm-hmm. here. Well, I, I feel like I'm being bullied now, yeah. so I'm going to just uh, <laughs> gonna walk away with my thoughts. Um, okay. Question time, gents. This is your second go at the knock list. Is the package the true fairy tale of Chicago? Let's find out. That was a loose and tenuous connection to a Christmas uh, song there, but uh, let's go with Liam first. Yay or nay? Is the package making a knock list? I've got to ask. I've got to ask some questions, but I mean, the knock list, right? Is the knock mm-hmm. list meant to be the best of the best, or is it meant to just be? Is it is it good or bad? Go kind of think. Because if it's just it's good, then I think yeah, fine, knock list. If it's meant to be the best of the best, like you'll make the knock list at the end of your podcast when you reach your final episode in 2035 or whatever that would be, and you go like, you know, here is the knock list. Is the idea for it to be the creme de la creme of spy movies, or is that not the case? It is the definitive list of the spy movies that people need to watch to really, yeah. Then I, <laughs> then I don't think I can with or put this on the not list because I don't think people need to watch this. I don't think this is definitive spy movie stuff. I think it is a good free stuff film. I think if you're into spy movies, like if you're into spy movies, certainly enough to start a spy podcast, then <laughs> yes, by all means, watch this. Uh, you will enjoy it and you will have a good time. Um, 
But I think if you're just like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I can take or leave Spy Movie. I just want to see the absolute top twenty greatest Spy Movies of all time. This ain't gonna be on the list, so I'm gonna have to say no. I, you know, I think that's a fair answer. Although it doesn't really make sense that you said yes so vehemently to Men in Black International, but we'll we, we won't dig into that. That podcast is available. Let's, let's go back and listen. See us consign it into the flames of the non-knock list. What the fuck? I think we did. I think we actually did disavow it. It was that bad. Yeah, but, disavowed. Uh, disavowed. That's it. That's it. Uh, Matt, what about you? Yeah, no, I mean, this is, of these types of films, these type of spy films, this type of uh, films in the era, I think it's a completionist film, you know, it's 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 perfectly fine, three star, possibly less than three star, depending on how kind you're being, but, you know, if you're a fan of this genre, and you want to tick them all off, or you're doing all of Gene Hackman's films, or Tommy Lee Jones's films, you know, it's going to be higher up than than some, but I think it's very much uh, for fans only. So knock list or naughty list? I mean, it's naughty list. Ooh, Sorry. It's getting a lump of coal <laughs> this year. Sorry, Gene. <laughs> well, that's two no's. It is maybe still to play for, although a split vote is technically a no, I think. Uh, we decided a long time ago. I should emphasize, I am not putting this on the naughty list. I'm putting this on no list. Oh, like, yeah, it's, not, it's not getting disavowed. It's not a bad film. It's just not no, the best. No. That, maybe, that, that, i tell you fair. what. Literally, yeah, yeah. you can have this in your Christmas stocking, but it isn't a main present. How's that? <laughs> sure. It's, it's like the little the little puzzle you get, or it's like a tangerine. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a lot of Brussels sprout in your, <laughs> your stocking. It's a secret Santa for a work colleague you maybe don't yeah, know too exactly, well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. I was going to open this up by asking you about some secret Santa presents, but let's not get into it. Cam, what about you? Is it the best package you've ever had? No, 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 no. This is uh, not a knock list movie, but this is sort of like a pulpy, you know, watch it late at night on streaming kind of movie. I would recommend it for that sort of thing if you're a spy fan and you like these kind of late 80s, early 90s, you know, political thrillers or action movies. And, you know, within like the works of Gene Hackman, it would not be on his knock list. It would not be on the Tommy Lee Jones knock list. Uh, There's a lot of people it would not be on the knock list for involved in this movie. So, yeah, for me... No, not quite. But it was it was fun to watch. I well, there you go. That's three no's. So my vote is completely pointless. So I'm just going to go with my gut and what I want to say. And I think it should go on the knock list because at the age of almost sixty, I want to be as active as Gene Hackman is in this film. Uh, I, I I wish there was hope because my back hurts now and I'm in my mid thirties. <laughs> um, now, of course, it's not making the knock list. Into even on like the list of the Christmas spy films we've done so far, I say this is probably my least favorite. What are the other Christmas spy films you've done? Well, Honor, Majesty's Secret Service, and uh, The Long Kiss Goodnight. A long kiss, good night. Yeah, 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 yeah. I need to rewatch that. But yeah, this is probably my least favorite of our Christmas films. But that's four no's as such. The package is not making the knock list. The dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. Gentlemen, I want to thank you both, Matt, Liam, the Spotlight lads for coming on board, or two-thirds of the Spotlight podcast, your second boldly going voyage on this podcast. Um, well, firstly, I, Matt, you've got two other shows that we sort of barely mentioned on here, except for Paul Dano, but like, where can people find you online and hear all your shows? 
Yeah, no, it's been great to come back, guys. Thanks for having us and everything. And uh, yeah, as well as Spotlight, you can hear me uh, and my co-host Daryl on Is Paul Dana OK? We've got four full Dano seasons in the bag, including an episode on his guest appearance in The Sopranos with uh, with Liam, and of course his uh, uh, supporting turn in Night and Day with, with you chaps. And um, we've got an extra bonus season on Judy Greer, which was our most recent uh, season and first foray into other character actors known as Greers. And uh, we'll be back in the new year for season six, which is a, a brief return back to Dano to soak up the rest of his films we've yet to cover. Uh, and me and Daryl are also across uh, Daryl's OG show, which is Sudden Double Deep, which is the triple bill title podcast where we look at three films that share a word in the title. So we pick out uh, a word from, from a tin and find three films that share that word somewhere in the title uh, and try and get a range of films of different genres and different decades and different countries if we can as well to kind of go deep uh, on some of those so we try and pick maybe one that's uh, a big obvious one that we can't not do and then a couple of ones that are maybe maybe more hidden gems so that's over um, at SDD Film Podcast and the Dano pod is called Dano OK at is Paul Dano OK uh we'll put links to that in the show notes below of course and liam where can people find you online uh you can find me at twitter if twitter still exists by the time this uh episode goes out hmm. at liam h dempsey uh on twitter uh obviously you can find it at spotlight at spotlight pod on twitter instagram and facebook and you can uh drop us a line on gmail as well spotlightpod at gmail.com uh as uh, i mentioned someone did suggesting a uh christmas movie um which we're actually gonna do so you know it does it contact us it does work um and yeah we've got some cool (laughs) stuff coming up by the time this episode comes out uh we'll have our star trek prodigy episode out uh with david trumbull uh who we mentioned earlier uh amazing uh story artist on films like wendell and wild uh for netflix he came on to give his animation expertise uh on star trek prodigy so that was really interesting and um also we've got our christmas special uh coming up which i i won't reveal here but uh yeah that'll probably be out around a similar similar time uh as this episode so lots and lots of fun stuff to come perfect well um thank you gentlemen and uh we'll see you out there on whatever's left of twitter when this is all said and done <laughs> yeah merry christmas everyone merry, merry christmas, christmas. Oh, oh. <laughs> Well, Cam, all I wanted for Christmas was a spy film, and we had one. That was the package, and, and what a lovely chat it was. That's right. That's right. We have run out of puns regarding the package, but nonetheless, it was an interesting journey along the way, and I'm glad we watched it. Well, there you go, folks. That was our discussion on the package. But don't forget, later this week, we have a chat with Mr. Andrew Davis, the director of this week's film, and of course, the director of other amazing action films such as Under Siege and The Fugitive. But Cam, the question goes to you, sir. What have we got coming up next week? Yes, we have a real Christmas present. Scott and I are basically going to be off for the holidays, but that doesn't mean that the Spy Hearts content is stopping. We are going to be releasing an interview we did with Colin Salmon, who played Robinson during the Brosnan Bond era. Yes, indeed. We are super excited to bring you our chat with Mr. Colin Salmon, one of the uh, leaders of the Brosnan era. Uh, So look out for that in your podcast feed next week. 
And if you liked what you heard on the show, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, Merry Christmas. (laughs) 